0: Well, welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show. I'm Harry Edwards, your host for the evening. This is a show in which we like to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Tonight, we have a very special topic because we've invited experts who will guide us through some of the tough issues of our day. We'll be talking about the new book authored by Tim Mulhoff and Richard Langer titled, Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. Now, before we get into our topic tonight, I'd like to remind our listeners that we have that we are supported entirely by your generous donations. If you're a first-time listener, live or on our podcast, special welcome. If you find that our shows are valuable and wish to see it continue, please donate by going to our website, www.apologetics.com, and click on the Donate button. Your generous contributions will help us remain on the air. All right, so... Tonight, gentlemen, we're going to be talking about the book Winsome Conviction Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. And I am honored that uh, we have the authors tonight here in the studio and I get to introduce them. All right. So, Tim Muloff is a communications professor at Biola University, and uh, his expertise is in interpersonal communications and persuasion, with a particular interest in enriching marital communication. And Richard Langer is also a Biola prof in the Bible and Theology Department, and he is the director of the Office of Faith and Learning at the university, specializing in integrating faith and learning for the students there. And he has published in the areas of bioethics, theology, and philosophy. Welcome, gentlemen. Oh, it's great to be here.
1: Thanks so much for having us, Harry.
0: All right. And Lenny, my uh, trusted ministry partner, thanks for being here. Now, now, now tip, yeah. glad glad to be yeah. here
2: all as always. Yeah.
0: All right. Typically, I always ask for ministry updates, but we've got a lot, a lot to, 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 to talk about. So, I trust that everyone's doing well during this COVID season, <laughs> and I'm just so you know honored that we could do this. Now, this is an important topic because uh, you know, as experts are saying that we have reached a point in U.S. history in which Americans are most divided since prior to the Civil War. Yeah. Um, And it's kind of crazy, and I think your book, Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church, is going to be super helpful. And so I invite our listeners to, right now, stop what you're doing—I'm sure you're awake, right—and go to Amazon.com and pick up a copy of Winsome Conviction uh, by Tim Yoloff and Richard Langer. All right, so let's get right to it. Uh, Tim and Rick, why did you guys write the book?
3: Well, Harry, what you said is absolutely true about uh, the dividedness of our country. Uh, A study just came out last year that said that 98%, think about this, 98% of Americans, we don't agree on anything, but 98% of us believe that incivility is a major problem in the country, while 65% of us think it's already reached crisis levels. And 45% of Americans say, I don't feel safe sharing my perspective anymore, so at a time when we need to talk about immigration, we need to talk about um, uh, sex and uh, whether we wear a mask or not, we have lost the ability to talk to each other. And we hope the church would be different. But as we discovered um, we're not that different and we're losing the ability for Christians to talk to each other, that's why we wrote this book.
1: And I'd I'd add to what Tim said Or about the same time the survey he was talking about came out, a similar one was taken uh, interviewing people, you know, across the political spectrum, and asked them, do you think violence would be an appropriate response if your candidate lost? And I was thinking, oh, don't be ridiculous. And it was, you know, the the survey had about around 25 percent, a little bit more of the um, blue – people that you know liberals were a little more inclined to think violence might be appropriate to deserves a little less but it's around 20 you know 23 and 28 percent or something like that and i thought that's crazy and then of course on january 6th it suddenly didn't seem crazy anymore so you realize wow we have become that volatile
0: yeah to be honest i thought january 6th was going to be terrible i mean and i you know praise god it didn't amount to, to to much that's my opinion lenny what do you think
2: Well, I I think we talked about this a little bit before. I think that the culture that a lot of people have assumed we hold is a culture that no longer exists, Uh, and I think January 6th proves it because when you're talking about about the conservatives who violate a landmark, a a symbol of liberty – that's that's a game changer, and and yes, there were a few who were extreme on that end. You know, it, it's 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 kind of like you hear a lot from the pro- pro- progressive side. What what there, there's a thing called the progressive ladder, right? Where they go, kind of the radical fringe pushes a little farther, and what happens is when that radical fringe that little bit farther gets a little bit more acceptance then the whole – what, what is, used to be considered conservative is now outdated. What used to be considered liberal is now center of the road, and then, and then it keeps going. But we've seen that now on the conservative side as well. As mm. you've said, our, yeah. our, our folks are dividing. And so while the extremes have gone up on both sides, that means the middle is rising as well. And it, it means our culture is changing. Yeah. Symbols don't mean what they used to mean anymore. If you were on the right or on the left, you wouldn't burn the flag unless you were completely anti-American. And now that's, you know, the flag as a symbol has no meaning. So is it a surprise that the capital as a symbol mm-hmm. has no meaning or, ha- or or doesn't hold the sacredness that yeah. it should have? Ha- We've lost the culture that maybe our parents and our grandparents used to have. And I think those that assume that we have it and they don't understand why the other side doesn't see it, I think that's part of the breakdown,
1: yeah.
3: And this is James Davison Hunter, uh, a Christian sociologist, who says there, there's sacred territory. A community holds things sacred. He calls it the sacred core. And when you really start to transgress a person's sacred core, this is when you get deep divisions of how dare you transgress what you know is so dear to me. And so, but you're right, the capital. To some was a symbol, and for others, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's something we're going to transgress. So this gets into some interesting territory where, where how dare you transgress what is sacred to my community? One reaction is to just do it anyway. The other reaction is, okay, we're not going to talk anymore yeah. because I don't want to trip any wires. Okay. So that's why we kind of wrote the book. To to frame it and then to help people talk about some really important issues. Right. So for
0: sure tonight I want to glean some practical principles and steps on how we can better as a community uh, talk with one another civilly. And that's important because you're right. If we stop talking about these things then all sorts of bad things happen Mm. for sure. Um, Now I realize that our audience um, could be just anybody tonight but I think specifically there's a special message for Christians because Jesus himself, our master, said, prayed for us that we ought to be united, you know. Mm. So uh, so that's important. And when you're saying um, – Tim is a little discouraging about how a vast majority uh, of Christians just don't know how to talk a- anymore about important issues. Uh, they're scared and, and all of that. So tonight we'll um, – Hopefully, we'll find ways to, to reconstruct that again. But um, <clears throat> I, I wanna, I'm looking at your book here, and I love how you uh, uh, created a framework, how the both of you created this spectrum of conviction. It, it's a nice uh, guide uh, that helps us to uh, affirm and to even discover what some of uh, the confessional beliefs from which ultimately our actions derived Mm -hmm. so i want you two to talk about that i think that's a helpful framework what do you mean by uh that whole spectrum of conviction chart that you you made and and by the way if you're really wanting to know what we're talking about you need to just pick up the book but give us give us a taste of, of what you guys mean by this let's start there
1: well, Harry, I, if if you think about <clears throat> convictions for a moment, you realize we, we use the word in kind of a broad fashion, and and you know people will will throw it around without uh, thinking very deeply about what that really involves, and so it covers a lot of territory. And we all I'm, we're really trying to do is let's think across what we're using that term to describe, and so. On the one level, if you want to kind of think of a chart that goes from left to right, on the uh, kind of on the far left where this starts, are things that you might call confessional beliefs. And the reason we actually use the phrase confessional is a great way to immediately think about them, is think about confessions of the faith. So things like the Apostles or the Nicene Creed, and so a confessional belief would be something like we believe in, in God the Father, creator of the heavens and the earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, And the, you know. When when we walk into church, if the pastor stands up and says, we will now recite the creed, the expectation is everyone in the church would rise and be able to say those words in good conscience, you know, bracketing a person being there as a seeker or a visitor or something like that. But and anyone who refused any of that, you have good reason to doubt that they were truly a Christian. But you think these are these things that we write into creeds, um, but creeds tell you something about how you are to think and what you are to believe, but they don't tell you necessarily how to act. It isn't that it has no entailments, but you just have to move on down the road. And so this is where we identify the next step of what we just call moral mandates, which are things that are clearly taught in Scripture, which may be things literally like Ten Commandments or things like that are just plainly a moral exhortation. It could be a principle like love your neighbor as yourself that has perhaps, you know, debatable Entailments, but it's clearly a command that you do it. You just might wonder about how it's expressed. Then you have to go. Well, that's a general principle to take the love of your neighbor. That is a great principle. Was well, that? What does that mean? I actually need to do? Do I care for him physically? Do I care for his soul? Do I mow his lawn? What, you know, what does it look like to put it into action? And so, for a lot of us, we we discover that. It varies by the values that you have. Some people really are the people who care for all the tangible needs they have. Others people talk to them and care for them. And so you have this realm of core values that this ends up kind of going through till you finally bring it out to the far right end of the spectrum with a really specific guideline for conduct. You know, I am going to go and care for my elderly neighbor every morning. I'm just going to check and see how they're doing because that's what it means for me to love my neighbor. And your, your other Christian friend across the street may develop a different course of action, but you'll all agree on the stuff on the left side of that spectrum. Your neighbor's made in the image of God, and your neighbor's your neighbor, and your neighbor should be loved. But you're going to visit every day, and you're going to make sure you keep touch with his, you know, financial and physical needs around the house because he can't care for those. You know, people deal with those things differently, but we end up, Thinking all of these things, we do this because of my Christian faith. We do this because of what Jesus says. But you see, even in an example like that, where it diversifies as you go across that, and you go from a universal belief that everyone would share to a whole set of different guidelines for conduct that people would all w- would be following. All of those might travel under the name of conviction. And so yeah. that's what we're trying to say let's think about it in the spectrum and help people trace their actual guidelines for conduct back to the confessional beliefs that they came from
0: right i, I know in in your book specifically on page 141 uh ricky you, you outlined like three goals actually um, which i found helpful you know we gotta achieve disagreement first. Actually, it's it sounds almost counterintuitive. What I mean, aren't we already disagreeing? I mean, what what do you mean by that? But I, I like that how you start with maybe defining the terms. You know, like, what are we really disagreeing about? Because, like you said, in that uh, whole spectrum of conviction, somewhere along the lines, I think we find common ground, and then maybe we need to revisit that, or just maybe you know go backwards a little bit and go, all right, that's that's solid, and then. I mean, even the process of doing that might actually solve a lot of issues already. But I know you have goals two and goals three, and maybe we can talk more about that. But before we get to some of the practical steps, because I I like the second hour to be more on the practical side – First, what's, what's, what's the Bible say about conflict? Is that, is that a bad thing or a good thing or a neutral thing? Or what in the world is that? What, why do we fight as brothers and sisters in the Lord? Why do you think Jesus had to pray that you know, we remain united and all that?
3: <laughs> well, conflict can be good and bad. It depends on how it's done. There's a ton of calm research that says resolving conflict appropriately actually strengthens a marital relationship, a community. So, so we believe there's two levels of communication. That's what the scriptures are trying to get at is one, there's the content, and then there's the relational. So the content, that's your argument, your belief, your passion, your conviction. The relational is the amount of compassion between two individuals, the amount of respect, acknowledging each other's position. So when Paul says, speak the truth in love, he says, speak the truth, content, do it in love, relational, uh, since this is the Apologetics podcast. Peter says, hey, I want you to be ready to give a defense for your faith, content, but do it with all gentleness and reverence. So my argument would be, as a communications professor, if you only get one part of the equation, conflict isn't good. Like if you're just arguing content, but then doing it in a way that's disrespectful or not honoring each other, then I think conflict's bad. If you can maintain both, we disagree over an allocation of resources of the church but we're doing it in a respectful way, then I think conflict can help, as Rick says, to help us achieve disagreement and understand where we're coming from. It might not be resolved, but but we feel like both aspects of communication need to be addressed and not just one. Some people love just telling the truth, and I don't care about the love part. Some people are so concerned about the love part, they never get to the content part. So we think both has to be there, and if it is, then we think conflict can actually be a helpful thing.
1: Having said that, you might want to draw a distinction between the kind of conflict Tim's talking about and just quarreling. Yeah. I mean, that, that term is prevalent in the New Testament. In the book, I you know kind of do a high-speed run-through and kind of say basically every single New Testament epistle refers to conflict. Yeah. And the biggest threat we have is, I think, is actually from our internal quarreling, not the... You know, raging secular humanists or the threat of Islamic terrorism or the LGBT community or whatever your favorite, you know, anti-Christian force is, uh, the most dangerous thing is the cancer that eats us from within. And it's this, mm-hmm. this quarreling and quarreling and yeah. quarreling. And Paul cautions against it. It's a requirement yeah. of elders that they are not prone to do that. They need to learn how to, to you know, rebu- rebuke people gently. I mean, Second Timothy 2 has this wonderful section at the end of it where he's talking about you know, you restore these people. Even if they're trapped to do the will of the devil, what do you do? Well, you restore them with gentleness yeah, in the yeah. hopes that they would repent. So that, that anxiety, it's palpable throughout the New Testament, yeah. this concern about quarreling that will destroy the body. And that's the thing that really moves us for, yeah. you know, for this agenda. I kind
0: of like what you said there in the book. That jumped out at me. You, you said the greatest threat to the church— is quarreling Mm -hmm. and it's not the lgbt issue it's not whatever whatever political issue is you know popular today uh and yet christians are quarreling amongst ourselves about those issues and we forget that it's the quarreling itself is is uh could be the demise i mean of our local churches and what
3: fuels the quarreling is when resources are at play so you've got a church with limited resources So one part of the church says, it is the Great Commission. I mean, that is so obvious that that's what we should be about. So our money is gonna go towards foreign missionaries. And then you get a group of people who say, yeah, but what about the homeless? The second great commandment is neighbor love, and we have neighbors who are literally living in the streets. Now there's only so much money to be had, and that's where the quarreling can start, where I now view you as a speed bump to get what i think the bible tells me what to do and and we can talk later we're going to yeah. talk about groups yeah. because groups can fuel anger towards each other because you have such negative stereotypes of what the other side wants to do so uh, i think when rick did that quick little survey of quarreling in the new testament that was an eye-opener for me as well to say we got to be very careful uh, good healthy communication and conflict resolution as opposed to quarreling yeah no, can-
1: As Tim was talking about there, you know, we're doing great commission. We're caring for the homeless. Classic example of a core values issue, right? Right. One person has this really deep felt desire. And they probably have a story behind it, right? This is, you Mm. know, maybe it's, you know, they've got an uncle who's homeless. Or maybe they were for a while or whatever. And they just feel it in their bones. And another person has that passion for evangelism. And it sounds like they disagree. But the funny thing is if you got them on their own, Is the guy who's worried about the homeless person opposed to evangelism? No, they're a fan of it. But they share that common ground, but they value these two things somewhat differently. They rank order these things differently. And for many of them, they may not even be making an argument about... Before God, this one's more important. They're just saying, for me, this one's more important. Yeah. But I do care about how our church spends the resources. We don't have any outreach to the homeless. This is crazy. How can we do that in good conscience? And so those are the things that we forget there's even a common ground sitting underneath it. We just assume if they don't think it's number one, they don't think it counts at all. So
3: we're unapologetically Pro-life, right? Biola University is is part of our doctrinal statement. We sign this every year, every faculty member, every staff member, right? Well, we got picketed. This was like two years ago by a a Christian group that said, you're not pro-life enough. (laughs) We literally want to see you quadruple what you're doing. And they literally, on opening day, there's an airplane flying across our campus with a banner calling us out. There's people picketing as freshmen are coming in. So that's another way that this happens is I get it in my mind, helping the homeless is the way we show Christ-likeness. And anything else, if you don't come up to my passion level, then you you just don't get the heart of Jesus. (laughs) That's another way that these disagreements really come out.
0: That's that's where quarreling comes from as well. All right. So real quick, I'm trying to, in my mind, really – zip through uh, an outline that I have uh, based on your book. So we covered some of that. Uh, we covered some of uh, uh, how quarreling is is all throughout the New Testament and um, the apostles and Jesus that deal with that. Now, but at some point in the book, you also say that at some point, I guess, separation must take place. Explain that, please.
1: Well, you know, you, you don't have to read that far through the New Testament to bump into that, right? So, you know, Paul and Barnabas are hanging out together, having a great old time. They've just, you know, carried out this incredible ministry up in Antioch, and they're, you know, sent out for this missionary, you know, advance of the gospel. It goes great. They come back. They have a big powwow. We have a conference. We get it all figured out how the Jews and Gentiles are going to work together, and let's go do it again, Barnabas. And the next thing you know, they're having this knockdown dragout over, over do we take John Mark along or not. And again, I would make the observation that there's a bit of a core value thing going on there where Paul's saying, man, I do pioneer missionary work and I can't have guys who might bail out midstream. And Barnabas is saying, look, uh, I remember when you were the guy.
0: Was- <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and if I hadn't come and met you, I was the guy who built the bridges, buddy. You got a short memory. Um, and so the interesting thing that Paul and Barnabas managed to do with that, you see that conflict in Acts 15 But then you see Paul referring to Barnabas several other times in the New Testament, always and only positively, reflecting the highest regard. And they said, look, we have two mission visions here that can't be pursued together at the same time, but nonetheless, we view them as both advancing the mission of God. And we're not going to chop each other down. We will separate, but we'll have this division that will be with kind of a healthy boundary and fence between us that doesn't require us fighting with each other. And so... Tim and I spend a lot of time worried about helping people to talk better, achieve disagreement, and hopefully achieve resolution with it. But would be the first to acknowledge that sometimes, even when the people haven't committed a heresy or false teaching, there may be room for making those sort of missional decisions that, that lead people in different ways. And,
2: and what I think is the interesting outcome of that is what God got was He got double the external effort. Mm. Out of that conflict, so it wasn 't a net negative for the church. it was a net positive. He had two teams of two instead of just one team of two. You can reach tw- twice as many people, and uh, that 's kind of the way God works in a lot of this stuff uh, i 'm even interested how how we even view other people because i think I think what you 're saying, even in separation, as you mentioned with with Paul and Barnabas y- If you're going to do it in love, if you're going to put others before self, that means that you have to have the kindest intents for them and and the kindest view of them. Mm. I'm fascinated even with the story of Jonah where he's sitting up on the hill waiting for the fireworks to go off. And God says, don't you understand these people? These are the Ninevites who don't know their right hand from their left. They're like two-year-old kids. Mm. Now, then if you knew anything about the Assyrians, I mean, these are the guys who would throw babies up and catch them on their spear. And Jonah remembers, hey, those mm-hmm. were my people he was doing that too, you know. Mm-hmm. But God says, but they were doing it in their ignorance. Mm-hmm. And you have to treat them with compassion like children. And, and so while separation is important, it has to be – you have to have the charity to look at another person. And I think that's when you know that the separation is proper. Otherwise, you will get a net negative. If you see a net negative, then maybe you need to reassess why you separated because maybe it's not the right way.
3: And it would have been fine for that pro-life group to come to Biola, ask to meet with the president, ask to meet with the provost and to say, look, I really think you guys can do more. Okay, And maybe that would be a good reminder in some ways. Right. But then to then say you're now the enemy because you didn't come up. That's what was so disappointing about that whole situation. Yeah, young earth, older. Yeah, oh gosh, young earth, older. We could go on oh, and yeah. on and on, yeah.
0: Maybe we'll talk about some of those things after the break, which is coming up pretty soon. But I just wanted to say, before our music comes on and before the commercial comes on, we will definitely continue our, uh, I want to say, the theory part of our show and uh, segue into the social context of our convictions, especially the role played by groups. Uh, And then we'll talk about practical steps, kind of like run through some of these issues through the uh, uh, what we're calling conviction mapping. And then for sure, right after the break, let's talk about Winsome Conviction Project. Remind me, that's the first thing we're going to talk about. All right. So we will continue our conversation after this commercial break.
3: The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. This is John MacArthur welcoming you to Portraits of Grace. Affection for Jesus Christ is the most
0: identifiable characteristic of true Christians. That's because believing in Him and loving Him are inseparable. Jesus said, The Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed. To His antagonists, Jesus declared, If God were your Father, you would love Me. Anyone who truly loves God will love Christ. And that love will be reflected in their obedience to His commandments.
3: Many people are confused about what it means to be a Christian. But you have the privilege of clarifying the issue by loving Christ, loving Him deeply, and
0: demonstrating your love by obeying His Word. May God bless you richly as you pursue that goal today. This is John MacArthur, hoping you'll join me again for Portraits of Grace.
2: When you awaken in the morning, what is the first decision you must make? Hi, I'm Chuck Swindoll. No, it's not whether to get up or what you're going to have for breakfast. It's what kind of attitude would you choose to face that day with? And I'm convinced our best attitudes emerge out of a clear understanding of our own identity and a deep sense of God's purpose for our lives. That sort of God-honoring attitude encourages us to press on, to focus on the goal, to respond in remarkable ways to life's most extreme tests and circumstances. So here's a good plan. Tomorrow morning, plan early
3: on a good attitude. Pastor and teacher Chuck Swindoll. Visit Insight for Living's website at insight.org.
2: All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show.
0: All right, well, welcome back to the Apologetics.com radio show. I'm Harry Edwards. Uh, We are a show that likes to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. And we have um, on our show tonight special guest, Tim Muloff and Rick Langer, now, welcome again.
1: Thanks for having
0: us. Yep, we're talking about their new book, Winsome Conviction: Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. So, uh, before we get into more of you know the content of your book, let's talk about a project that both of you guys are involved in, and it sounds really fun. It's called Winsome Conviction Project. Tell us about you know, tell us more about it.
3: Well, about a year ago, we had two uh, donor families come to Biola, and they were distressed, just like everybody else, about the incivility, lack of ability to talk to each other, particularly that Christians, they felt, were failing in this area. So they met with me and Rick, and they said, let's do something. And so uh, these wonderful families uh, provide for a five-year project. So we've been working with Christian high schools. We've been working with universities. We went to Baylor. Um, uh, We're doing conferences, conferences. Um, we're going to tackle online communication next. We feel like this. we've got to address the incivility that's happening online. Uh, we have our own podcast called the Winsome Conviction Podcast. We meet, We do it at 3 a.m. in the morning. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, just, after yeah, the show. <laughs> yeah, after <right>? the show. <laughs> 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 Guys, out, out, yeah, out. We need to start. But you certainly can go to winsomeconviction.com, and you'll find uh, our podcast, the books we've written, and a bunch of articles, interviews kind of resources for everybody. So that might be a nice place to go to to see what God's been doing. And we have an event page uh, that you can check out. That's great. That's great. Um, You guys have
0: done some stuff already, though, right?
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, we met with one of the largest Christian high schools in Orange County. And uh, we feel like the next generation, we need to really get to new communicators and change the narrative of what it means to – Winsomely engage people We're working with another high school Coming up in about uh, two weeks So we've been pretty busy um, But we've really enjoyed it And people feel it That's what's interesting about this topic People feel it Non-Christians and Christians alike Like we can't stay on this trajectory We just can't And so it's a really good opportunity For us to step in and say What can Christians offer That's great, that's
0: great
2: yeah, let, let me ask you a question on that, Tim. You specifically said online. And I've noticed that people online are a lot like guys who drive in a car alone. What is it about driving in a car alone that makes people think that nobody else sees them? I mean you drive <laughs> in a car alone and you pick your nose. Yeah. And don't you don't you realize there's windows all around them? Uh, in the same yeah, way, yeah. Why, why are people be, – because they feel secure behind a yeah. keyboard – that they would say things they would never say yeah. in person.
0: I think it all, also depends on the vehicle they're driving too. That may, that may like, oh. like like the bigger car you're driving, the, the yeah. more expensive car you're driving. But, you, yeah. you know, but you, that's
2: you... A, I, I think there's a similar dynamic that just yeah. seems to work for me. Is as, as I said, people people in social media are a lot like you know the guy picking his nose in the car alone. You just it's just an amazing thing.
3: So there's a great podcast uh, called "Talking to People Who Hate Me." A young gay activist has a podcast, and you can imagine some of the responses he gets, mm-hmm. right? And so he decided, I'm going to call these people. So, so they say something when they when they put their comments in, and it's usually, man, it's pretty harsh. Mm-hmm. Then, they, then they actually agree to a phone conversation, and so the guy will say to his guest, he'll say, "Okay, so you said that I was an idiot in like the chat," box, and the guy goes, "Oh, yeah, all right, my all right, my bad." You're not an idiot. But I still really disagree with yeah. – so I think what you're saying is right. When I'm face-to-face or even voice-to-voice, people tend to walk things back a little bit. So yeah. we we just feel like with the Winston Conviction Project, we have got to address online communication because as Secretary Clinton said, it is the new public square. Yeah,
2: I, absolutely. Well, it's – and I find it fascinating even when – and I don't know how many times you've had this um, experience – you meet with a bunch of non-believers, right? Who have stereotypical views of what an evangelical is, and, and of course, in our profession, and as apologists, we're engaging folks all the time. But usually, what happens is, even at work or something like that, you have coworkers, and most of them will say something like, "Well, I know you're the exception. You're the different guy, right? Than yeah. than every, <clears throat> but all those other people, and you." And you're going, no, I'm just like all of my friends at church. I'm really not different at all. And so it's, it's a, again, it's an interesting dynamic.
1: Well, and that's the problem when we don't really know each other. Right. And so you fill in the blank of what those people must be like. And then you meet one of them and you're like, oh, they're not that bad. And by the way, this goes the other way too. Absolutely. So you meet someone who's, who's gay. You meet someone who's a liberal. You meet somebody who's whatever your thing is. And you're like, oh. And you discover there is common ground. It's uncanny how often you actually have even shared moral values. There's areas obviously you disagree, but we we act like these people came from another planet, Right. and they came from across the street. Right. And we need right. to discover the things we share in common because we live on the same street, so to speak. That's
2: why I, I appreciate your approach in the and in the, in what I refer to as the Thomistic um, aspect of right being able to state the argument from the other side to the point where the other person says, yes, that's exactly yeah. what I believe. And then, you know, Aquinas would go on and say, okay, now here's why it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: well, and that was, <laughs> Harry mentioned earlier, That one the things you talked about is achieving disagreement. And that's yeah. kind of my definition of that. It says, until I can state your position in a way that you look at me and say, yep, you got it right, Rick. Um, I don't know what your right. position is. So yeah, how could we right. possibly disagree when I don't know what you think? Yeah.
0: I kind of like how you can uh, say... This phrase, that's super helpful to me. If I'm trying to understand people, I go, I hear you say this, and then you repeat how you understand it. Did I get it right? Yeah, I always say that. I hear you say this. and yeah.
3: So when we worked with uh, Christian High School, it was before the election, and we were specifically brought in to talk about – uh, can you have different views of how to vote and still be fellow faculty at a Christian high school? So we had him put him in groups, and we came up with this formula that that um, in order to share your opinion, you had to first say, okay, this is what I heard you say. Second, this is where I agree. Third, here he was an emotional moment. Like I kind of um, – it resonated with me. And then here's what I think I think. Mm. Okay. Now here's what was so funny. As it got going, people just wanted to cut through. And ju- one guy literally said in the group that I was in, can't I just say what I want to say? And I'm like, oh, absolutely. You just got to do these four steps. In our evaluation afterwards, people commented, hey, that was a really nice speed bump. It was a little awkward at first, a little annoying, but it was a speed bump that really helped me when things got going. And, yeah. and that... Uh, it, we got to have a plan. Remember what the book of Proverbs says, a word spoken in the right circumstance. Mm-hmm. So we got to kind of create that circumstance. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good.
1: And that was a pretty intentionally chosen sequence there, too, to force people to actually listen yeah. mm-hmm. and then to listen empathetically. So you're saying, hey, what you said did touch me. I disagree with you about this thing with immigration, but when you told me about, you know, the experience of your, your own family, you know, that really moved me.
0: Yeah. All right, so uh, this one point of theory that I want to tackle first before we get into some of the issues we face and run it through the conviction map um, is this, the whole um, idea of the social context of our convictions and especially the role uh, played by groups. Could you guys expound on that? Mm -hmm. Because a a lot of – you you mentioned this one uh, expert that talked about a particular number. I think it's 150, uh, the Dunbar number. Yeah, Dunbar's number. Yeah, Yeah, Dunbar's number. Yeah, Yeah, I remember that. Um, And uh, beyond that number, you just lose connections now. And so you mentioned in the book that that's kind of an important thing to have is these connections. But it could also be bad. So explain that further.
3: Well, yeah, it's good and bad. I mean, it's good to have an affinity group, but it's bad if that group becomes insulated. And so groupthink, I mean, my goodness, that's been around since the 1960s. But groupthink is the highest value of the group is loyalty to the group. So I do not challenge perspectives. And over time, we don't invite anybody in that would rock the boat. And so over time, you're always like, man, that other group, I don't get him, man. I can't. What idiots? How can they not see? And so it really amps up the relational I was talking about in the first segment it, you're no longer respectful. And if you actually meet somebody outside your group, you're like, dude, how can you believe this, this, or this? So we like to ask the question, is this a healthy group? Has it become an echo chamber? And we're, we're kind of opposed to echo chambers.
1: Yeah. Another interesting example of the the kind of the challenge of group is that groups form what you might call an assumed consensus And I tell a story in the book about experience I had when I was a pastor with our leading a small group ministry. And uh, it was the Clinton-Bush election in 1992. And uh, George Bush lost. Clinton won. And I remember meeting with my small group leaders. I think it was on the Thursday right after the Tuesday when the election had taken place. And one of the the, uh, leaders suggested that we have a time of lament for the fact that, uh, you know, Bush had lost and Clinton had won. And a few other people said, yeah, we should do that because, you know, we need to, you know, bring these things for the Lord in prayer and stuff like that. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I understand why you want to lament. But, in this is what I said, I said, okay, here's, here's the interesting thing. Uh, you know, statistics would show that about 80% of evangelicals vote Republican. Um, And let's just assume that we're normal on that count, that we fit within the statistical range. We're a large enough church. There's a pretty good chance we actually do, you know, that the numbers are are unforgiving in that regard. So you have a small group of 12 to 14 people. I'd just like you to write down on a three-by-five card the three Democrats who you think are the ones in your group. And there's this weird silence. And then somebody finally gets brave and says, well, I don't think there are any Democrats in my group. And I'm like, well, now, why do you think that? Well, because no one ever says anything about that. And they go, and why do you think that's the case? And it's because you have established and assumed consensus. And because the the leaders and the majority represent this viewpoint, everybody else just goes undercover. And so you get this sort of weird enforced groupthink. And you don't even know that there's two or three people there who'd be deeply wounded if you had a season of lament over the fact that the person they had voted for actually won the election. And you don't even know you're doing it. That's the yeah. rub, yeah. worst of all. You don't even know.
3: So I was on a panel, and uh, it was on relationships, and somebody asked the question about benevolent sexism. So very quickly, benevolent sexism is you open the door for a woman, which is benevolent, But it's sexism because you'd only do it for a woman and you're actually weakening women, giving them the not so subtle message that they can't open doors for themselves. Okay, that's benevolent sexism. So I'm part of a group that everybody thinks this is just craziness. I mean, that's nuts and blah, blah, blah. So but a person in the audience asked the question and the way she phrased it, a light just went on. And I said publicly in front of everybody, I said, you know what? I think I agree with that. The looks from the (laughs) panelists were like, have you lost your mind in utter betrayal? And I was like, oh my gosh, just feeling that you're like, hey, uh, note to self, never do that again in front of this group. So that's kind of what Rick's saying is you just know there's certain things you don't cross anymore. That's group. That's classic groupthink. Yeah. I keep it quiet because I do not want to rock the boat. This is my community. I like these people. And I want to be – afterwards, uh, one person came to me jokingly and just punched me in the arms like I can't believe but, – but that to me is a, a fairly yeah. good example of how it can work. Yeah.
2: Interestingly, of course, I would probably open the door for the president as well. So is it sexism or is it deference? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> that, right. Again, that goes – there's a common co- conviction there that's being expressed in two different a- aspects. So I, I think that's I, – yeah, I think that's I think that's very important and we, we see it in the reverse as well. At most colleges, the Christians are the ones who are un- undercover. The Christians oh, yeah. are the ones mm-hmm. who are – tacitly meek and the professor doesn't think there are any in the in the classroom or something like that as well so yeah
1: yeah almost every example we give of this is absolutely a two-way street and, and I, I just want to say we're talking about the human condition here this is just the kind of creatures we are and this should make you feel the need for a savior when you begin thinking yeah. about it, how many times have i done this how much have yeah. i been blind to and it's like that's right don't you don't kill yourself over this. Just understand you need grace because this is way way easier to do. I mean, that, that kind of a, yeah. offense and hurt is way easier to do than you think. Uh,
0: you know, your discussion a while ago reminded me of how you two, uh, Rick and Tim, you guys embody this whole uh, civilly discussing things. Because I know, like in your previous book, Winsome Persuasion, you actually differ on. What many might consider fundamental issues, and that's an interesting thing to how you guys write about that, and I appreciate that. And um, well,
3: that's kind of a sore spot for Rick because I was blatantly he was wrong <laughs> in that whole extension. Of course, no, but you know we thought we would do that because Rick and I are friends. We respect each other. Yeah. See, here's the thing that makes it work. People have often said, "How does this relationship work?" The relational has been established. Yeah, right. We respect each other. We laugh. Humor has found a way to, to still be there. So, but, but we did. We thought, hey, let's just do that at the end of Winston Persuasion. And we kind of had a moderated discussion about what to do about same-sex marriage now that the Supreme Court had ruled on it, kind of thing like that. Yeah. So Harry, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's actually a nice example of um, how two people can disagree and do it in a way that's kind of winsome, only because the relational level was there. Yeah,
1: and, and the thing I would add to that, it was a relational level, but back to that conviction spectrum. The other thing is I have no doubt about Tim sharing my core confessional mm. beliefs yeah. and actually agreeing with him about the central moral mandates of yeah. the Christian faith. I'm like, look, I don't doubt that with Tim. Right. He goes off to these crazy places on these different things, but I'm like, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's – it, and it's a combination yeah. of this – As Tim said, you know, a a really deep relational base, but also a really substantive confessional core that we yeah. share in
0: common. You guys are actually doing it, and it's infectious. It's a good model. I mean, I look to the both of you, and after reading that, I go, oh, my goodness, really? Tim said this? And Rick said this? Really?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I remember coming to you. I go, really? You believe right, that? Right, stuff?" Right. Hey, you know, we did something. We, we taught a class uh, called Authentic Communication, and the students started to pick up a little bit that we had different theological beliefs. So we did one day where we both walked in with a cup of coffee, sat down, and we particularly talked about provenient grace because we kind of disagree about it a little bit. And students just ate it up. Yeah, sure. Partly because we're joking with each other, we're laughing, we're poking each other, and we are disagreeing with each other. Later, students, because I think they're so starved for it, they don't see it very often. And so we actually talked about G.K. Chesterton, we think we need more Chestertons today where he could have a debate during the day with HG Wells, Rudyard Kipling, and then that night go to a pub, laugh, yeah. drink a pint together, and, and kind of just let their hair down a little mm. bit. I think we've lost that yeah. today. Yeah, we need more of that. You're right. Uh, uh, I, be- think, okay, I think uh,
2: one – pair who really exemplifies that is robert george and cornell west yes
3: Yes. and
2: i mean they'll be on the same plane together and and they'll pray for one another and most people are shocked to find out how much of a christian cornell west is right but they are very conservative and very progressive and it's an interesting exchange to see those two
3: and ruth bader ginsburg and justice scalia so beautiful that she wrote The foreword to his uh, biography. Mm, I thought it was just beautiful. Yeah, we're losing that today. And I I wrote an essay for the Christian Scholars Review um, saying, Where are the Chestertons today? And, and, And I think some people have said, We've got Chesterton was in a different era. Today it's so much more antagonistic. The vitriol is so high that we can't do it. And we're about to have a guest on our podcast that um, I've been friends with for over 20 years, a woman I deeply respect, and yet we we really disagree with each other, and we still laugh about jokes. She was my dissertation director. We still laugh about things like that. So we've been able to maintain it somewhat, and we're going to have her on our podcast to talk about feminism, but also talk about how we've been able to maintain our relationship, even though we, we do have some significant disagreements. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right. Let's go through some practical stuff now. All right. I'm really interested in uh, what this conviction mapping is all about. Um, it's you know, in Section 3 of your book. And uh, I know you say that, uh, that some of these issues go through five stages if we're going to treat issues civilly. First stage is clarifying our convictions. Second is identifying the social context of our convictions. The third is understanding the personal history of our convictions, and then the next is thickening our convictions, and finally, understanding the convictions of others. So, I think that's a, a helpful guide there. Um, l- let's let's run some of these issues through that um, map, but maybe you, you might want to cover some of those uh, principles if. if if you guys can do that. And then let's run through, let's say, Lenny, what's, what's a good uh, issue today? Um, you mentioned like young earth versus old earth or
2: – Yeah, that's – I mean within the church. Uh, within uh, the that, church, that's yeah. A, that's, that's a, a, that's a sig- big thing. Significant debate. That's a significant debate. That's a primary area of contention yeah. uh, where people will even call in question someone's salvation. Yeah,
0: Both I know.
3: I know. We use that as a test case in the book. We, we uh, There's a wonderful book called The Fool and the Heretic. And uh, a group called the Colossian Forum brings together one of the top theistic evolutionists and then one of the uh, young earth um, individuals for a weekend. And what's fascinating is it almost didn't happen. The first night they were having dinner and one of the guys said to the other guy, you just do pseudoscience, man. That's all you do is pseudoscience. And it almost ended right there because the relational was broken. Yeah. But, but then the guy was convicted by the spirit the next day, came back and apologized And then they had a great time of thickening. So we actually use that as a test case in the book to follow their progression of thickening each other's convictions and understanding. Mm, That's great.
1: And just picking up on that from what you were asking about you know, going through this process, uh, I I think one of the most important things when we talk about thickening the conviction is just the whole idea of narrating it
3: Mm. instead
1: of stating the conclusion – and say this is what I believe or this is what is right to say let me tell you the story of how I think about this issue. And I in there mention, like for me, my feeling about immigration uh, is I'm far more open to immigration than some other folks might be. I, uh, and part of the reason for that, I tell there is my dad came over on the boat. Mm. Um, he came over on the boat without an entry visa. Um, He came over on the boat fleeing political oppression. He came over on the boat because his mom had been taken off to a concentration camp in the middle of the night from his own home. Um, And America welcomed him, kind of. (laughs) Um, But he he ended up – and he did work through legal processes and stuff like that. But he ended up becoming a citizen by serving in the army. Um, he got his citizenship papers on discharge, and he was at the back end of World War II after having come at the beginning of World War II, and so he was a proud American. And I tell the story that I worry—you know, my dad was always that way—but I worry when I look at our current policy: Are we going to have to give back the Statue of Liberty, where it says, "Give me your poor, your your uh, huddled masses yearning to breathe free"? When we say, well, give me your PhDs in the technology field because we might be able to use them well. And so, you know, this is my back. This isn't exact. I mean, that's vaguely an argument, but it's mainly me telling the story of my Mm -hmm. feelings. And it may not change anything about the objective wisdom of this or that uh, immigration policy. But if you're talking to me, wouldn't you rather know that about me and know that about my dad? And so we don't tell the stories. So we stomp on each other's toes. We don't understand where they're coming from. And man, when we... Tim and I have done some things with faculty with differing viewpoints, and we started out by saying, you come over to our house. We're going to have dinner together, and we're going to tell the long stories. Yeah. yeah. No, and I like that. It changes everything.
0: In the right here, you, uh, you use this term weaponize. We like yeah. to weaponize our arguments. And yeah. as apologists, this is an apologetics uh, show, we're so guilty of that often. Mm-hmm. We we use our arguments to just kind of like one upmanship type thing. Like my arguments are better, they're solid, they're sound. So what do you have to say to that? And then and the end of discussion, we don't care about anything else. We don't care about the person. We just care about how good we deliver the argument. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not helpful. It it, it actually turns people off.
2: Yeah. I, I remember when uh, one day when a Jehovah's Witness came to our door, and it was a Thursday. I wasn't there. My son had answered the door, and he said, "Oh, you need to come talk to my dad." But he won't be home. You know, he'd come back on Saturday. And that's because, you know, Saturday was my birthday and he hadn't gotten me anything yet. So he, <laughs> he got me. At the <laughs> But she came back. And, and the first thing I do when I engage these people is say, you know, there's a lot of belief systems out there. Why did you choose mm-hmm. this one? Mm-hmm. And you know what she told me? She said she had a brother, an older brother whom she loved. But her older brother had some mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And she said there were things that he did growing up that were horrifying, that were inexcusable. And eventually he succumbed and died. And she goes, I knew he couldn't be in heaven, but I couldn't stand the thought of my brother being in hell. Now, mm. should I start off with Granville Sharp's rule on Greek <laughs> grammar and talk about the deity of Christ? Is that really going? Right.
1: But by asking
2: right. the question, right. now we know where we're, what mm-hmm. we're dealing with and what we're talking about. And that's just a short example of how we— we need to approach that as opposed to arguing about God versus a God, things yeah. like that.
0: All right. So I know we have less than two minutes. So maybe 45 seconds each. Tim, uh, why should people buy the book? And I'm, I'm going to ask you the same question too.
3: Rick. Well, I, I think the book sells itself. I, I don't think there's anybody, any of these listeners right now who have not had a conflict with a person and thought, I just don't get you. I don't see how you don't see my position, and I just think you're out to lunch. But we're Christians, and Jesus said our unity would be one of the telltale signs. So we have a vested interest in working this out, and this is one way of helping people think about conflict, but then speaking the truth in love is what the second half is about. Rick, same question.
1: Yeah, you know, the thing I'd probably say is that we look at our world right now, we see all the polarization and the conflict and the violence we've even had and all these kinds of things, and and you feel overwhelmed and think, what can I possibly do? Uh, Well, Goethe had this wonderful phrase that, you know, we can't clean up the whole world, but if everyone just swept in front of their own front door, the whole world would be clean. Mm. And what I want to say is, you know, pick up a book like this, think a little bit about the conversations you are having and say, how can I make them just a little bit more, more loving, a little more gentle, and a little bit more authentic in terms of saying, I really want to learn from this puzzle and give, the, give them my honest attention. And that kind of progress at your personal level would be the biggest thing I'd encourage people to to pursue. Yeah.
0: Well, I kind of faintly hear the music coming up, so I know our hour is up. I want to thank my special guests for this evening, Tim Ulof and Rick Langer, for being here and talking about their latest book, Winsome Conviction. Uh, Make sure to check out the site. Uh, What is it again?
3: Winsomeconviction.com. .com. com. All right. There
0: you go. And so uh, special thanks to Lenny and also Jared uh, back there, who's making everything uh, sound professional for us. So... um, Good night, and we will be back next week.